Hello and welcome to Weird Together. I'm Brennan Storr, host of the Ghost Story Guys podcast. I'm Joseph Camo, host of The Cardinal Rule. And this is the show where we celebrate the latest and greatest in independent horror films. Well, usually. This, this doesn't quite qualify, but we won't get hung up on that, Joseph. Right. We're not critics. We're not experts. We're just weird. Together. Joseph, my friend, we were just saying off air, it has been a minute. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. You know, uh, overall, a lot of good things going on in life. We were talking about some of those. I won't unpack them all here. Uh, but, you know, uh, things are going good with my boys. Things, you know, enjoying what I do for work. Uh, you know, kind of seeing someone I kind of like quite a bit. So that's good. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of in a good place, you know. And, you know, uh, and, you know, one of the things I appreciate about you, Brent, is not only as a podcast, but as a friend is that we always kind of check up on each other and support each other. And, and that's, you know, that's just really kind of one of the things I really value about you. And so, I, you know, I have to ask as your friend, how's your mental health sort of on a scale of, I don't know, say force of death to saloon as far as your mental health, where would you say you're at? Well, Joseph, as I have just moved uh, two weeks ago today to London, Ontario, and it has been uh, challenging to get everything set up. Uh, but as I sit here in my former crack house apartment, literally, it looks like someone's kicked in my door at some point. I would say I'm firmly at a demonic. <laughs> what, what the hell? Okay. So like, so for me, that's that good. means you're... That's a, a brand demonic. So that's a, okay, that's a, I'm a, I'm in a, a strange, but high quality place that maybe not everyone can appreciate, but we don't pay much attention to those who don't. See, so for me, I interpret that is you are in the worst place you could possibly be that is <laughs> that is with with kind of a bloated sort of sense of uh artistry attempted i don't know so i i'm a little worried about you bren i mean i did just get cast in a short film so you might not be wrong <laughs> that's fair i haven't actually fair. talked about that on the other show so that's yeah so we'll see whether or not i talk about it anymore depends on how well that goes but uh we'll, we'll see whether it's my kind of demonic or your kind of demonic <laughs> right right that's fair we are, however, here, Joseph, not to talk about demonic. Uh, although I would happily do another episode on that movie. I watched it again the other <laughs> You'd day. You'd be doing really it by it. yourself. <laughs> I I actually saw Neil Blomkamp's new movie, uh, Gran Turismo. Okay. And uh, I, it, it's fine. It's it's a fun sports movie. But the whole time I was thinking, boy, I I, I wish was, this was demonic. <laughs> but anyways, we're not here to to talk about the filmography of my fellow Canadian. We are instead here to talk about a film shot in Canada, in fact, shot in Manitoba, and that is David Slade's Dark Harvest. Now, before we talk about Dark Harvest, Joseph, we got to do that thing we always do, because you never watch a movie in a vacuum. Going into it, you take every film you've ever seen, the day you had, everything going on with you. So before we talk about Dark Harvest, we got to unpack the baggage. Joseph, my bald prince, what was your baggage going into Dark Harvest? So, you know, I didn't have any familiarity with this filmmaker, which is kind of a theme for me <laughs> with a lot of these films. You know, the fact that it was released by a major studio certainly, you know, adjusted my expectations for, if nothing else, its level of production. Um, I probably went into it expecting that the story might not be as innovative as some of the independent films we look at. You know, you have to kind of do something a little more creative to, you know, get noticed with independent films, whereas major studios are more risk averse, right? So they go with things that are a little more textbook. 
So maybe it had that kind of expectation coming in. But aside from that, uh, there was no real other baggage. Interesting. Yeah. I, I picked this for a couple of reasons that we will talk about the, as we go in. Uh, again, usually we do ultra indie films. Uh, you know, for example, I, I read, now I don't know if this is true or not. David Slade, if you're listening, let us know. Big fan. I'll talk about that more later. Uh, actually, no, that's part of the baggage. So just to finish my thought, sorry, ADHD is in high gear tonight. <laughs> I read that the budget is 40 million. I don't know if that's true. I, it looked good. I don't know that it looked 40 million good, but regardless, I read that uh, the Winnipeg Free Press, pardon me, reported it at 40 million. So again, don't know if that's true, but if it is, that's, that's like 80 saloons, you know? So like this is, yeah, it, it's, I've probably got a, a bigger budget than all of the films we've done on this show by a factor of several. But um, yeah, it, it, my baggage mostly was David Slade because I happened to see this, uh, I think it was a tweet or a post somewhere about this, uh, about this film being out and it was David Slade's new film. And David Slade is, is sort of my other bit of baggage because I'm a big fan of his. Uh, I haven't seen his, his first film, which was Hard Candy in 2005, but I, I did see 30 Days of Night and I loved it. It is a great looking horror film. It, it still holds up, you know, that was 2007, I think. So 16 years later, it, it just looks incredible. And it, it is a, it's a fantastic experience. And I don't think he's done a feature since he directed one of the Twilight sequels. Since then, he's been doing television and he's done some great television. Yes, American Gods, Hannibal, Black Mirror, really, really great stuff. So I, I'm all in for David Slade. And when I saw on whatever social media platform it was, he had a new film out and it was dropping on Prime. I was kind of in the bag already. Uh, and then, of course, our listener, Derek, I happened to see that he posted on his Instagram stories that uh, he had watched it. So I asked him what he thought. And he was, yeah, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't too high on it, but he said it was worth watching. And so I checked it out. And like I said, maybe I was a little more inclined to appreciate it because my enthusiasm for David Slade, hard to say, but I, that was probably my, my baggage. That, and, and honestly, with the move and honestly, the last month between England, my sister's wedding, and now this, I haven't had a chance to watch a ton of movies. So I, I was kind of excited just to sit down and watch a new horror film. Now, interesting. And I, I wasn't aware that he did 30 Days of Night, but that was a film I saw in the theater and really enjoyed it. You know, great kind of vampire film. Yeah, I'm surprised you've seen that. I, I, I just, the level of violence didn't strike me as something you would watch. Uh, you know, I... I can handle a little bit of that. Um, and I, I mean, obviously I didn't know a lot about what was going on, you know, what, what to expect going in, but I saw it in, as horror films go. Yeah. I thought it was, it was pretty well done. Uh, really something about, you know, sort of that whole uh, being stuck in that town and hiding and that very terrifying that uh, looking at his filmography, he did an episode of Breaking Bad, which is, which is also obviously a very, uh, something that I'm a big fan of. So. Yeah, no, Slade is a, is a great director. And for all its faults, which we'll get to in the Toctagon, which I think are many, I don't think his direction was one of them. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll talk about it, but I, 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 whatever he does next, if he does, he's got another feature, which given the tortured release history of this one may not be a thing, I, I will be on board for it. But, but if we're going to talk about the film, Joseph, there's only one place we can do it. And that's the Toctagon. Welcome to the Toctagon. Two men enter, two men leave. Let's get to it. What did you think of Dark Harvest? 
I did enjoy the film. Um, I enjoyed the premise, the setting. I liked Sawtooth Jack um, as kind of the the big bad monster. Certainly, the there's some interesting things about the story. So overall, I did enjoy it. There were some critiques that I have that we'll get into, some things that I, I thought didn't work as well as they could have. It did remind me a little bit that it had a feel of some of the older horror movies, you know, kind of the 80s and 90s, you know, that, that I kind of enjoyed. So there were some things I definitely enjoyed about the feel of it. Yeah, and me too. And I think the look of it and the feel of it, like that's, that's what made me choose it for this because I really thought the story was lacking. I think there was a lot of world building that didn't happen, or if it did happen, it was just cut away in, in post. Uh, now, it is based on a book by Norman Partridge, and I believe it was um, an independent horror release from 2006. And when I watched the film again today, knowing that, some of the, the deficiencies in the story, or what I perceived as deficiencies in the story, they made more sense. Because one of the things I've noticed in, in indie horror is that, not, not everyone does this, but there are uh, you know, some people who do this. I'm trying to think of a nice way to put this. There are great ideas that are not necessarily properly fleshed out. And uh, now I, I'm not 100% sure that Dark, uh, Dark Harvest, the, the novel, was independently published. I, I believe it was. It's fairly short. I think it's like 175 pages. Um, I actually bought a copy. I just haven't had a chance to read it. That it's hard to build out a mythology in 175 pages, and I feel like a lot of these indie authors they kind of run into that. They they like the idea of saying the lodge, the guild. You know, they like this sort of feeling of depth, but they fall short in establishing any of it. And I kind of felt that way about Dark Harvest because, again, it looks incredible. It just if you, when I saw 40 million, I thought, well, I mean, it does look great. But every, at almost every point, the story just had me going, what? And every time they talk about the Harvester's Guild, I thought, okay, you know, we're going to, as a sort of this, this shadowy entity that controls the town, I thought, all right, we're really going to get into it. Okay, we're born in this town, we're cursed. All right, what is, we're going to find out what that means. And we never do. And it's like it's paying lip service to these, to these ideas, but never actually delivering on it. No, that makes sense. I, I agree. The world building was lacking. There was a, there's this interesting town that just doesn't have a lot in terms of establishing where it comes from, how it got there. It just always has been. And, you know, it does feel a little bit like some facade there. Uh, and I agree with you, the guild, like there's so much you could have done. And in fact, one of the things in general, and I don't know if maybe this is a little bit of a pacing issue, there were points where the film felt like it started dragging on in the middle. And I wish it would have used some of that, you know, kind of runtime for, for some more satisfying resolutions or depth into the guild and unpacking that and delving into it and dismantling it. So yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying there. And I, I would agree. It looks great. There's this clearly this history that's gone on and they unpack it some, there's a little bit of, you know, narrative you know, or, you know, kind of uh, describing that, but it, it just, there's so much more that could have been done to establish that world. Yeah. Like one, my big theory when I was watching it was that we were going to find out this was all some kind of simulation that, that was because it seemed like such a heightened version of what people remember of the 1950s, which honestly, I think at this point, although I think it was actually 1960 
62 that this takes place in. I think the first hunt was 62 and then 63 was the next one because the prize, I think, was a, a, a car from 1964, like a brand new 1964 car. But I, I just feel like at this point, we're so far away from that era that it's hard to portray it without it feeling like pastiche. And I really kind of thought watching this, I thought like this feels like, like they're trying to make a point about the f- 50s and 60s and about like the institutional rot that kind of actually underlied all of that because it felt so broad that I was thought, I, I'm certain it was, this is what it was going to be. And like I said, it, it, it wasn't. And I think that was another level on which it failed to work. I don't think it really meaningfully critiqued a lot of the things it tried to. But again, I thought, I thought we were going to find out it's a simulation. Because when uh, Jim, I think his name is, the winner of the first hunt, gets the car and drives out of town, and he's like, there's no stop signs on the black road. And that's such a, a weird phrase. I thought, okay, I've seen the running man. You're going to die. Like you, and immediately I thought, okay, so he's not, not going anywhere. And then later when Richie tries to drive out of town, the, the police officer stops him. What are the odds that the cop is going to actually know he was trying to leave town on that road? Like, is there some kind of network set up to, to sort of stop this for people to like observe and notice when someone's trying to leave town? Is, how did he get ahead of them? There doesn't seem to be that many roads. So I thought this is so unlikely that, again, he must be a guardian of the simulation. But no, no, it's, it's, that's not it. It's just a small town where apparently they have one psychic cop. And I kind of want to see the Psychic Cop movie. <laughs> yeah, there, there were a lot of those things. And I think you're right. It felt like a cartoonish representation of that era. I saw one review that said it was like a, I forget, they said like a horror movie uh, set in Greece or, you know, the film Greece. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know? exactly. And I, you know, and you talked about, you know, the, the, the institutional rot and some of the things that you thought maybe they were going to address. And one of the things that kind of stood out to me when I, when I looked at some of the social themes of this, you know, there were issues of race and class that abounded in the film, but they weren't handled with any kind of deftness. You know, they, they just kind of, you know, dropped them there that there was a little bit of a class thing between, you know, the students talking about different parts of town. And then certainly the issues of race in terms, you know, of how, you know, the one character, Kelly Haynes, was treat, you know, treated and certainly, you know, the pejorative that was levied at her um, and, and some of the way she was treated. But like, yeah, it just they didn't really deal with it in any way that was meaningful, I thought. No, I, I, again, there are things I think you can take from it. You know, for example, this idea that every year they, you know, the seniors do a hunt of, of Sawtooth Jack and they, they starve the boys for three days and then they send them out there, which I don't think makes any sense. Like the starving thing, I don't know why that. Because, I mean, okay, they jam him with candy, which is a weird thing. Um, but like, I feel like, having them go after the money and the, the like having the, the social advancement be the thing they're willing to kill for. I think that there's something there, but they're just really hungry and they, they're going to murder. Like, what would I do for a Snickers bar? You know, like you're not you when you're hungry. <laughs> yeah, no, that it felt like they just tried to create this idea of, uh, you know, they'd be rabid animals. Right. And, and that it would turn them into that. And, and that also felt kind of sloppily done. You know. Yeah, because I was thinking the one thing you could pull out of that was, and, and it was again, this, it sounds like I'm picking fault with the film, and I guess I am. I, I, again, I enjoyed it, and I do recommend watching it. It's on Prime. I mean, Christ, it doesn't cost you anything. But, you know, with, on a script level, it just doesn't work. And, and one thing that really jumped out at me was how the whole thing kind of devolves into The Purge. And 
they attack the owner of the butcher shop. And the butcher is played by Mark Boone Jr., who's also in uh, Slate's 30 Days of Night. And I mean, he, that guy's great. I, I love seeing him turn up in anything. But they murder the shit out of this guy and, and smash up his shop. And I'm thinking, has this never happened before? Like, you've been doing this every year, which again, that also raises questions. Because, and, and again, I think if your film has me asking these questions, something went wrong. Because some of these questions, ah, you just suspension of disbelief, you roll with it. But if, if there are so many things that I'm getting hung up on, how many kids is this thing killing every year? You, you, again, you, you've kind of failed at a story level. And all that shit just, I just think it gets in the way of, of what's happening. Because like one scene I did like that I think really, again, could have played more into the class war aspect of it is the kids who paid each 20 bucks to hide in a, in a storm shelter or in a, in a like a, a bunker. And the other kid tries to get in and they will not let him in because he will not pay. He doesn't have the money. And that ends up costing all of them their lives because Sawtooth Jack turns up, kills the shit out of the one kid and then goes into the, the bunker. And again, I think it was a masterful shot. And I think if they had managed the, this level the entire way through, this would have been a classic because Sawtooth Jack goes into the bunker and all we see is this tidal wave of blood coming out and it's gross and it's absurd and it's great. And again, I think if they'd been able to meet that the whole way through, I think this would have been an, an all-timer. Again, as it was, it's entertaining. But uh, it just, again, it, it, can't, it can't keep that up. I thought all the scenes and elements with Sawtooth Jack, Sawtooth Jack, at least for me, worked, including that scene. I thought that was one of the strengths. Remember, we, we, when we talked about another film, uh, The Angry Black Girl and Her Monster, where yep. the monster was actually one of the least interesting parts of the film. And it was a great film, right? We really enjoyed it. But the monster was one of the least interesting parts. And this is a film where it felt like, to me, the monster was one of the more interesting parts of it. So I felt like they nailed uh, that part of the film. Yeah, I, I would agree. The monster works. The, the kills work. Uh, it's, it's, some of them are surprisingly gory. Like there, there was the, I was not expecting that level of violence. You know, there, there's a couple of kills, for example, when, um, I can't remember the character's name now, but he has his head cut off. Like half of his head is just cut off. Very effective, completely unexpected. Uh, but yeah, this, the town stuff, and I think that goes back to the, the inauthenticity of the setting. As, as you mentioned, you know, this thing is set in Greece. And I kind of feel like that is also a, a, an independent horror fiction thing where sometimes setting is not again they've got a vibe they, they i've got an idea for like i want it to be like this thing so it's gonna be in the 50s you know with the greasers and the but there's no research done into that it'd be like if i set a a story like oh i'm gonna set a story in in the 60s during the like with with the flower power and the and the hippie children and all this shit i don't know anything about that i mean and and i i sure i could draw on basically my knowledge of uh you know the forrest gump soundtrack to write what I think the 60s were like, or the late 60s were like, but it's, it's going to be pulling out of my ass. And this, this felt a little bit like that. And like I said, I didn't read the book, uh, but I, I read the synopsis and I bought the book, so I do intend to read it. But it seems like that is, a, I think the problems we're having with the film are problems, generally speaking, with the book. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense, which is why you, you feel like it's not on the director so much. I, I would generally agree. I want to talk about one more social theme that I thought was interesting here and that to me is sort of an allegory for something in, in, in the real world. The sort of sacrificing of young men to maintain the interests of the establishment, right? Yeah. Every year. Yeah, yeah. 
even you you look at like the the starving of them or functionally what that's doing is at least narratively is putting them in a different mental state uh, and then setting them loose. And to me, that felt like an allegory for like military service, like for for young men going to fight, you know, in the interests of old men, (laughs) the establishment, and certainly, you know, put through, you know, basic training to adjust their their mindset, you know, and this certainly is not meant as as any way a slight at those who, who choose to serve in the military, but it is, I think, a critique of the larger kind of structure of that young men fight old men's wars and die for you know the, the large capitalist machine oh yeah I, I funny enough i'm just reading i'm about 80 percent finished reading uh, the book the gun by cj shivers and it's um it's a comprehensive history of of uh the automatic rifle a sense is mostly the the ak-47 but it discusses the history of the ak-47 within the larger context of automatic rifles throughout history. So we're beginning with uh, the Gatling gun and then the, the Maxim gun and, and so on and so forth. And they're talking about how ineffectual the M16 was during the Vietnam War for, relative to the Kalashnikov. And what's fascinating about that is, you know, I didn't realize this, but essentially the army and the Marines and Colt, they knew what the problems with the rifle were. You know, they knew that it had been tested using one kind of powder, but when they sent it out to the soldiers, they were using a different kind of powder uh, that was much more likely to cause misfires. There were problems with corrosion in the barrel that, and uh, in the receiver in general. They knew these were going to be issues, but they kept sending them out. And what, consequently, what happened was soldiers lost faith in their firearms. A huge number of these weapons were misfiring. And the brass just said, well, you should be doing a better job. You should be doing a better job of cleaning them. But of course, as the soldiers said, and this, you know, this went up, like there was one XO who wrote a letter and was summarily punished for it, saying that in the middle of a live firefight, we cannot stop to clean our weapons. That difference is life or death. And we shouldn't have to. This is crazy. And there were tests done on fully clean and inspected weapons that still jammed for various reasons. But again, the reason I bring this up is because it's sort of continuing this theme where the government knew it was putting men's lives in danger, but for the sake of capital, it kept doing it anyways. And that's such a, a theme repeated throughout history. Yeah, for sure. I think another layer to that as well is you have also this sort of glamorous, uh, sort of kind of romanticizing of the winner of the competition, right? And then what we find as the reveal is the winner is not at all a winner there next year's uh, you know, uh, Sawtooth Jack. And I think that also there, there's, you could, in that sort of allegory of military service is, as far as what we see with this film, you could also talk about sort of the kind of the, the romanticizing of being a soldier and all the ways that that is kind of lifted up and the idea of a hero and, and you know, a lot of the people who, you know, go in don't come back with when we uh, you know, in terms of wars and such. And, you know, and so just sort of, you know, romanticizing the, the soldier when the reality is often much less romantic. Yeah. I mean, you could even go using the Vietnam War as, as sort of your starting place. You could, the different, you could look at the difference between Jim and Richie as the difference between someone 
going off to the Second World War versus someone going off to Vietnam. You know, one felt they were fighting for glorious purpose, and the other was like, Jesus, I've been drafted into this thing, and I, I, this is, I'm, I like it's, I'm going into a thresher. And I will say, the, the, I, I had issues with the end, because like, like I said, you saw the end coming a mile off. You knew that Jim was, going, was not going to be alive. Clearly they were, you know, like he was, not, he was not actually out there in the world living his best life. And so Richie, I, he, I just, something told me there's no way he's getting out of this thing alive. And so from the second he wins, everything after that was kind of me looking at my watch waiting for it to be over. Because you just knew that all, whatever bullshit they put in the, in, in the way, he was not going to make it out alive. And, and I, I just, I think a, a much more graceful ending would have been him giving the keys to, I can't remember her name, but his, his partner in crime, Kelly, him giving the keys to Kelly and saying, leave while they've got me in here because I'm never going to get out of this place alive. I think that would have been a much better ending instead of dicking around with the cornfield and the, the grave digger. Although it was cool to see Ezra Buzzington, who we of course saw in Brooklyn 45. Hmm. That's right. Oh, that's who that was. I didn't, but I, now I've seen, okay. I place that face now. Okay. So I found the ending to be rather unsatisfying as well, maybe for some different reasons. Okay. Um, you know, the whole burn it all down, right? To me, it felt like a half-baked attempt at a redemption arc for Richie's dad, Dan Shepard, played by Jeremy Davies, you know, and I, and I will say like, even like, and the dad, like many characters in this, felt like two two dimensional characters. You know, just not fully fleshed out in many ways. He was a stereotypical dad who's kind of drinks a little too much, is kind of abusive, but kind of not. I don't. Know, I mean, well, he hits him, but then he feels bad about it. Whatever, whether that was a pattern or not, I don't know. But I also felt like there were points, like you know, Richie kind of when he was leaning into him at one point, you know, giving him shit for like, oh, you, you know, sold your own son for a Cadillac. That actually felt a little unfair because like his dad, like had told him that I didn't know before what yeah. was going on. Right. So it almost felt like the, even the Richie leaning into his dad was cliche a little bit, you know, I mean, I, I understand why he have angry feelings about the whole thing that he didn't tell him, but it's not like he knew, right. They were, they were, as the story unpacks, they were told after their son won what happened and their mom was on drugs and dad was drinking. And now you understand the pain, but that, that end where, you know, where, um, Dan, the father digs up Richie and tells him to burn it all down. Felt like, yeah, half-baked effort, his redemption arc. And it also felt like a bit of a shortcut. I remember in one of the other films we, we reviewed, you talked about a film where the ending, because they ran out of money, they just kind of panned over the desert, right? Yes. And yeah, it John, felt, John Carpenter's vampires. Right. And it felt like they didn't want to film the actual destruction of the fields or the town, so they just went with the burn it all. But even at all of that, I would have much rather seen a much more developed ending where Kelly and Richie burned down the guild or not, maybe not just literally, but they infiltrate it and dismantle it and take it down and, and expose it somehow something more involved rather than just burn it all down. And as I understand it, the book ends with Sawtooth Jack making it to the church aided by some of the local kids. And he then burns down the guild 
and a, a bunch of buildings, and it kind of sets the people of the town free. And again, I, I think that is a much more, I like that better. One of the things that they fail to establish, and, and again, I'm, I'm really going hard in the paint for this movie, Joseph, and I quite liked it. Yeah. But um, you know, again, I guess you, you, you like, the things you like you sometimes hold to a higher standard. But they never really establish how the town feels about this. You know, they, the way, like the, the, the visit by his dad to Officer Rick's house sort of makes it seem like they're in a, like a conspiracy together. But that is also not really borne out by, like that doesn't seem to be the case. They don't seem to be any more in cahoots than anywhere else. And I, I think I would have liked that better, but they, again, they don't really give you a sense of what the guild is or what their power is or who exactly is involved. So there's no sense, I mean, they, they pay lip service to this idea that we're cursed and we can never leave this town, but also we never see anyone wanting to leave. We never see them being restricted. Like everyone else seems pretty, pretty content in their lives. And so there, again, there's no larger sense of anyone being held hostage. And I think that's one of the, and again, maybe this was something lost in editing, but there's no sense of this as a real place. Yeah. They, they make reference to, if you want to go on vacation, you need to get a, approval from the guild. But for a place, you don't see people coming and going. And you would think that in a place where coming and going is that restricted, the, the populace would either be very downtrodden and kind of kept underfoot or very, very brainwashed because people who are not like cult-like brainwashed to stay in a place or forced to stay in a place by, you know, by armed guard are going to want to come and go. And if you're restricting them, they're going to push back. And then you need the armed guard or the brainwashing to keep them there. And there, there was none of that tension about the restrictions, you know, so something was, was lacking in, in terms of the dynamic there. Yeah. It, it reminded me of, I, I don't suppose you would have heard of this. In 1996, there was an adventure game called Harvester. In fact, part of me wonders if, you know, Norman Partridge like fell asleep playing this game and forgot he played it because it's about this. Uh, it, was, it was at the time fairly controversial. It's a point and click adventure game where you play as a guy named, I think actually Jim, who wakes up in a small town in the Midwest in the 1950s and can't remember how he got there. Everyone seems to know him, but you don't know them and you don't know where you are or why you're there. The, I believe the town is called Harvester. And eventually you find out that everything in this town is run by this mysterious lodge called the, I think the Order of the Harvest Moon. And eventually you are kind of drawn into the lodge and you have to progress through their challenges, which are these sort of bizarre perversions of the American dream. So, you know, old people are not valued for their wisdom, they're dead weight, you know, and lust and greed and envy are good. And when you get to the end, you find out that the whole thing is a simulation. It's actually, you are in a coma in the nineties and you were being put through these like intense psychological tortures by scientists trying to create serial killers. It's a really dark game. I mean, it sounds a little bit similar. You know, it's not dissimilar. Yeah, I have to wonder if the, the author was maybe, yeah, was influenced by that. Yeah, and that's why, again, partially why I expected it to be a simulation at the end. Because mm, it was okay. also, it, it all seems so highly stylized that 
it seems odd to think of it as a real as meant to be reflective of a real place. Right. You referenced uh, a few moments ago, you know, the church and the, the original ending, I think, was that you mentioned in the book was, you know, Sawtooth Jack making it to the church. And I kind of wanted to see them do more with that. Is there like, you know, him making the church apparently kicks off the Dust Bowl is, is kind of what, what, what's going on there. But I wanted to see to, if him making it there somehow saves him or, you know, you mentioned sets the, them free or if they're there. I felt like there's something they could have done something subversive with him making it there. Well, actually making him in the him making it there doesn't trigger the curse. It actually somehow, right, you know, frees him and or does something or that the curse is actually not what they think it is. There's a lot of things they could have done with that church. And certainly the lodge, you know, or the, the guild, you know, there's so much more they could have done to flesh that out other than it's, it's some of the key figures in the community who hang out at the country club. That's, that's, yeah, that, that's it. I mean, it's, it's like gross and bougie, but I don't know that it's necessarily sinister. <laughs> exactly. Yes. That, that, that's the perfect description of it. I, I, see, that's what I want to see. I want to see Psychic Cop. And like the gross, bougie town meetings of the, the Harvester's Guild, where they're basically just sitting around. You know, it's going to be super boring. It's going to look like the like rich guy's lounge from Roadhouse. Mm -hmm. Just a bunch of stuffed animals and fake tribal gear and rich white guys sitting around going, no, no, you can't go to the Bahamas, Bob. No. <laughs> Any other business? That's, I feel like that's, you know, the extent of the conspiracies. Yeah. You know, thinking of, you mentioned the cop. He the performance was so over the top, right? He was he was a caricature. <laughs> yeah. We're sorry, Luke Kirby. Yeah, You're Canadian. I I support you for this, but yeah, it was it was a little bit like uh, like someone said. Imagine Lex Luthor as filtered through Jimmy Stewart <laughs> turned up to twelve. <laughs> yes, maybe a little uh, maybe a little Ace Ventura in there too. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah. Right, it was in there, wasn't it? Just a little bit, just a dash, a skosh. Yes, right, especially right at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. So he was over the top, the character, and that was a choice, right? That was, that was a choice. And there were other cartoonish aspects of the, t the village or the town, which in many ways, maybe those were sort of a backdrop. But then you had these characters who, although they were maybe a little two-dimensional, maybe a little cliche, were less over the top, you know, like, you know, Richie and his brother and Kelly and, and their friends. And even, even the, the, the jock, you know, antagonist guy was, although he was cliche, he wasn't a caricature in the same ways the officer was, or the guild was, and, and all the old bougie folks. And I don't know, something about that, I think, like, didn't work because it, it like, with some of these characters, they were going for realism. And then the other characters were cartoonish. And that works if you're trying, if the, the, the realistic characters like, you know, are like the, it's like the Truman show, right? Where the real, the, the person who's really living it is like, wait, y'all notice what I'm noticing about all this? This doesn't yeah, feel yeah. right. This is cartoonish. Am I right? But there wasn't that. The, the, the realism, the characters who were in this real kind of paradigm we're just fine with the cartoonish. That, that was normal, right? So something about the juxtaposition of that just didn't quite work for me. 
yeah, I, I, again, I think overall we can just say tonally it was, it was kind of, I wouldn't say all over the place, but there was, yeah, there were tonal mismatches. There were huge problems in terms of the script, the world building, you know, a number of, of plot holes. But again, I still liked it. Yeah. I still, I, again, I watched it twice. I'll probably watch it again. I, it's a shame it didn't get theatrical release because I think it would play really well on the big screen. Uh, apparently it was supposed to. In September 2021, it was supposed to get a theatrical release, but because of the pandemic, they canceled it. And then um, I think it, I don't know what happened, but anyways, it, it got pushed and it was, it got a one day release in, through Alamo Drafthouse, uh, which I wish I could have seen because I, I love the Alamo. And uh, now it's, yeah, just pushed out quietly, pushed out to Prime. I actually couldn't find a single interview that David Slade had given about it. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, as much as we've been critical of it, uh, you know, I think we critique it in part so harshly because we, there were so many things we liked about it. I enjoyed watching the film. I enjoyed every scene with Sawtooth Jack. I enjoyed, you know, some things about the story. Again, the premise of this kind of pattern, the cycle was, was certainly a really interesting premise to build with. Um, I thought the acting for the most part was pretty solid. The characters maybe weren't as fleshed out as they could have been, but overall uh, actor who played, Richie Casey likes did a good job. Um, you know, Jeremy Davies as Dan, you know, I've seen him in other things and lost and other things. And to jump in there, actually, I really enjoyed Jeremy Davies. And I think it's kind of interesting that for a guy who spent most of his career playing really kind of sensitive types, he's now become abusive dad because he was also an alcoholic abusive dad in the black phone, which if you haven't seen, I actually think you would enjoy. Okay. It's, yeah, it's re- really good. It's like a paranormal thriller. Not quite a horror movie exactly, but yeah, it's, it's really great. I enjoyed his role. Like I, th- I thought he really managed the sort of wound tight 1950s slash early 60s house husband very well. I didn't even recognize it as Jeremy Davies until maybe, I don't know, half hour, 40 minutes into the film. And usually, you know, he kind of has a way he does these things. You know, he sort of has a, a, like the notes he normally plays. And I kind of felt like Slade actually managed to draw some different stuff out of him. I mean, he still goes back to certain wells, but I mean, that's just people. But no, I, I, I liked his portrayal. I, I actually, I don't remember the name of the actress who played the mother. I kind of wish she'd had more to do because she's a talented actress. I've seen her in other things. And again, I felt like the mother's role was really underwritten. And I felt like Richie was really a dick to her, you know, like unnecessarily so. It, almost like they wanted to say something about institutional misogyny, but again, they just couldn't get around to actually doing something with it. Yeah, I think they leaned a little too much in the angry teen kind of thing with Richie, you know, kind of the rebel angry teen, the uh, son who's in the shadow of his older brother, just a little too much in, in, yeah. in how he treated his parents in particular. No, I would agree. So we would, we would, would you recommend this one? To I absolutely else? would. Uh, if you're looking for just a, a solid horror film that feels like kind of a traditional American horror film or Western horror film, I guess, be, being filmed in Canada, you know, it, it does the job. It's, it's solid. It, it, for all the things we've critiqued, I didn't come away from it feeling like I wasted my time. Yeah, same here. I would absolutely re- recommend checking it out. It's on Amazon Prime. And I, I would say, I mean, I saw... About a week and a half ago, I saw The Exorcist Believer, and this is so much better than that in every way. And that is a film that had every commercial advantage, you know, a massive release. It's, it's I, like, I think it's playing in my bathroom right now. Like, I, I, it's, it's just on every screen around here, and it's not great. 
And it, again, it had all this A-list talent, actors, all this money being thrown at it, massive uh, marketing campaign, and it's just not great. And this is, this is it's just not good. And this is so much better. So again, if for no other reason than that, I think check it out because it, it does deserve to be seen. There's a lot of imagination here. Folks, you know, horror has been having a moment, but I think a lot of the more recent stuff that's come out the last couple of months, I haven't been as impressed by it. So this, this is very much worth your time. Save the 20 bucks you would have spent on Exorcist, whatever, sit down in front of Amazon Prime, watch this instead. All right, Joseph. Well, we did it. We made it to the end. And next week is our live stream, which I'm looking forward to. Yes, good times. Uh, and uh, you're going to let me know what we're talking about before then, aren't we? As soon as I figure it out, yes. <laughs> That's how we roll around here. That's it. Well, at least is yeah. Look, we're slowly now with me back from my various nonsense, uh, getting back to a regular schedule, and I'm starting to watch movies again, which is really, that's the big thing, right, is making, getting me on a place where I can comfortably sit down and watch a bunch of movies, because, yeah, let's, let's face it, we got to kiss a lot of frogs before <laughs> we find us, ourselves a prince. Indeed we do. And, well, that will be our last episode before Halloween, so it's spooky season. Oh, yes, it, we are deep in spooky season, although I make ghost podcasts, Joseph. It is always spooky season for me. That's fair. All right, my friend, where can everyone find you online? You can find me on Twitter at J-O-K-O-M-O-1-3, Jokomo-13. And if you're into NFL football, check out The Cardinal Rule. It's another thing I do that's a little bit different than this on YouTube. You can find me as Larger the Truth on Threads, Instagram, and Blue Sky. I still have a Twitter account. I don't use it, but I am there. Feel free to follow me if you like. I won't be tweeting anything until... uh, Well, really until something drastic changes, which I don't think it will, at least not the direction I want it to go. You can also find me hosting the Ghost Story Guys podcast. That is uh, everywhere. Fine podcasts live also on YouTube. Thanks to Mr. Camo here. This show is edited by Tanya Downing. Our music is composed and performed by The Revenants. The Revenants are a project of Boston-based musician Elliot Wilder. Our theme song is Rest in Peace from the album Music from Big Beige, also by The Revenants. If you can, please rate and review the show. Five stars on iTunes, Spotify, CastBox, anywhere you can. If you like the show, tell a friend. We would certainly appreciate it. But mostly, we just appreciate you listening. Until next time, remember, we're weird. And you're weird. So why not be weird together? (laughs) 